The Pinball Network is online. Launching Silverball Chronicles. The next two games here in a second. I'm just going to fill this one out. And fill it out. And silver. And fill it. Yes, fill it out. Ouch. Out. Ouch. Like E.T. Ouch. Americans. Hello everyone, I'm David Dennis and this is Silverball Chronicles with me this month. Like every month is my co-host Ron Secret Santa Hallett. What's up fella? Not much. How you doing? Very good, very good. You're in on the Pinside Secret Santa at this holiday Christmas season. Ah, uh, what's that again? That's where you give away presents? You're, you're a Secret Santa? You give presents, they send them in the mail, you get presents back. Uh, I, I'd say this podcast is our present. Oh, that's right. We have decided to release another episode here in the last part of 2021. Or is it 2020? I don't know, they all blend together. And um, we have decided, so if you wanted to hide from your family, you have something to do for a couple hours. So it's award season. Award season is upon us, Ron. The This Week in Pinball Awards, the yearly awards, the Twippies, are out for voting very shortly. So please remember us if we make it on the short list. Please, please remember us. So you're begging for Twippy votes. That's right. I will give up uh, if uh, if I don't hear back from people for voting for us. Oh, so we're, we're our podcast is ending if we don't get voted for. Is that what you're saying? That's exact. Yep. We should start a Patreon and ask for money or something. Yeah, well, that's... We could do that, but Ron, I like to be a starving artist instead. Mm -hmm. We also have the Pinball Industry Awards. That's coming up as well. Um, Sponsored, of course, by Flippin' Out Pinball and the Pinball Network. I've been working with our committee on that, and I have been very, very busy. So that's why we're a little bit late this month. And... This episode might not be to the same exact masterful high standards as usual because I have been very, very busy in the month of December. And David does all the work, just to let you guys know. <laughs> but you add all the charm. I add all friend. the charm, but I, I don't mm. I don't do any of these show notes here with all the misspellings. Mm, that's right. That's right. So remember, of course, our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Silverball Chronicles, if you want to check out all of my other correct spellings. And musings, you can swing on over. We always like to put up a couple of really neat little things to chat about. And last month, Ron, we actually went a little bit further and posted a question as a follow-up to our last podcast, which was your favorite System 80B game. And of course, Ron, your your favorite System 80B game was, of course... I believe I said Genesis, but you told me I couldn't vote. Yeah, yeah, so that's okay, I guess. But it would be Genesis if you were allowed to vote, which you're not allowed oh. to vote. Yeah. Of course, mine was Bad Girls. I thought Bad Girls was really great. And of course, a huge shout out to my first game, Tag Team. Super, super awesome. We had a lot of really awesome responses. We had a lot of great responses. 
Eric Wurtenberger, Chuck Wirt would crack out the Genesis. He would say Genesis as well. Albert Agar, formerly of the Pinball Nerds podcast, tag team, big fan there. Joe Chiravino, of course, from uh, from the greater Toronto area. He would say, of course, TX Sector RoboWar Arena Genesis Victory. All have some of the best music. And to the best of his ability, he doesn't know who is responsible for those sick jams. Well, I'll tell you what. Through some of my research, Ron, I wasn't able to 100% confirm who actually did those banging hits. But I think it was Rush. But it was not, it was oh. not Rush. I don't, know why, I don't know why that's topical at, at the moment. See, as a Canadian, right, like Rush is played all the time. So I'm kind of over it. Um, I think the music was done on those System 80B games by Craig Bierwaltz, although I can't 100% confirm that. So if anybody bumps into him or hears from him, give him an ask. Of course, another one, we've got Clark saying Genesis, Scott saying Victory, Mike Castleman, Genesis for me by a long shot, Joe Fox, Genesis. Wow. Tom Graff, RoboWar. Of course, he'd pick RoboWar. Who's Tom Graff? That's that's Neil Graff's dad, right? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, yeah, thanks for uh, engaging with us over on the Facebook. If you want to support the show, you can swing on over to silverballswag.com. We have our Silverball Chronicles shop over there. You can grab yourself a T-shirt, a mug, some stickers. We sold a couple stickers and a couple of shirts, I think, last month. So, I'll tell you what. They like us. They really like yes. us. I have a little extra tidbit here. When we had, I think, believe it was our Pinball 2000 episode where I could not remember the name of the main German distributor, the one that actually was interested in possibly buying the Williams Pinball division when they shut down. Yes, and this was the distributor who's always sort of on the periphery, kind of poking, making things. They want to do certain things. They were the ways. used German distributor that bought like 70, 80% of Williams games. Kudos to Tim Peters for this. He uh, said that their name was Nova, and I believe that's correct. Nova. When I saw that, it's like, yeah, that sounds familiar. I believe that was their name, Nova. And, uh, and they've got that name, of course, from the famous German car, the Chevrolet Nova. Uh, okay. <laughs> Wasn't that a show, Nova? Like some sci-fi thing? I don't know. I'm not a nerd, Ron. Oh, I think Leonard Nimoy might have hosted that. Ultimate nerdness. He was the guy that did that part on The Simpsons that one time, right? Oh, very good. Yeah, he did In Search Of, too. Well, Ron, the 90s saw the biggest leap in pinball mechanics and technology the hobby has ever seen. The dot matrix display and how Bally Williams leveraged it made the pins from the previous 10 years look like a horse and buggy. The purchase of Bally by Williams in the late 80s created a competitive shark tank which forced designers and engineers to continuously one-up each other. But as the 90s marched on and the industry contracted, designers left Bally Williams, or they were moved on to other areas. Junior designers, programmers, and dot artists took their place and built some of the best machines Bally Williams had ever produced. But sadly, the sales numbers didn't show that. This month is part two of our Pinball is Dying series, Williams in the late 90s. Ron, what do you remember about the late 90s arcade or pinball scene? Uh, I was kind of out of it by that point, to be honest. So you were in and then you were out. Well, I was. I didn't really start playing pinball till I was in my 30s in the 2000s, so... 
all this kind of happened. Yeah, I really wasn't around. Yeah. All I remember in the late 90s was the, the one arcade that sort of survived across the street from the high school in my town. It was, uh, it was, it was slowly going down, but the biggest thing that I remember at that time was seeing, of course, uh, Star Trek, the next generation, the machine there, but I spent most of my time on some of the arcade games cause I could make my coin last long. And the next gen probably didn't work. You're probably right. Well, Williams, of course, was looking for other areas to continue to turn a profit by 1994. They were spending a lot of time looking around and quite frankly, they were unhappy with the way that their pinball division was performing. So they entered into the real spinning slot machine market. So what's a, what's a spinning real slot machine? It's like the one arm bandit. That's what I think of. Yeah. You pull the arm down and the the three things spin. And if you get a line across, you win something. Yeah. So of course it would say that uh, the Williams slot division actually brought some healthier uh, cash flow into the company. Pat Lawler would say that it saved gaming, but it certainly killed pinball. So what was WMS gaming? Well, it was the manufacturer of slot machines and video lottery terminals, or VLTs, they call them, I guess. And, uh, of course, the software to help casinos manage their gaming operations. In 1991, WMS created a new division called Williams Gaming, and they entered the gaming and state video lottery markets, and they developed and released their first video lottery terminals in the Oregon market in 1992. Williams brought in a gentleman named Earl Thomas, who worked in Las Vegas as a graphic designer to help them with their gaming art. And of course, he was an Adobe Photoshop and Illustrator genius back when those technologies were just emerging. So he was huge when he helped out a lot of the dot guys when they made their DMD displays. So of course, we're getting some cross-pollination because WMS Gaming is in fact helping a little bit on the other side, which is pinball. Adam Ryan, the aforementioned, one of the aforementioned dot guys, says, uh, just by sitting next to the guy, by osmosis, I learned pretty much the fundamentals and how to think and create using those programs. I'm still using those same skills today. So Williams Gaming then entered this spinning real slot machine or real spinning slot machine market in 1994. But this was the company's video game roots that ultimately would prove to be their strength. However, uh, the gambling slot machine leader, a company called IGT, they were based in Las Vegas, filed a series of lawsuits against WMS for violating what they called the Tellens patent for virtual spinning reel technology. These lawsuits were settled out of court in 1999. So you can see that it took many years to solve this. And WMS agreed to pay IGT approximately $28.67 million. So you can see that there are some issues here. We're racking up legal fees. We're, you know, we're going to have to pay out a bunch of money. So we're drawing a deeper picture here. So from our Pinball 2000 episode, kind of the really the absolute end of Williams to today, you can see there's a lot of turmoil that's creating issues within Williams and ultimately would probably lead to the death of pinball. The thing about IGT is they're pretty much, they were pretty much a monopoly. I mean, if you went to Vegas, every single machine you saw there was going to be IGT. So they, they didn't want anyone else coming in on their market, I'm sure. Yeah. So when the lawsuit started to happen about a year or a half 
uh, about a year and a half or so, the layoffs at Williams started to appear. But of course, WMS Gaming also gave us a couple of new names in the industry, some names which are legends today. That would be Keith Johnson. Who's Keith Johnson? He's a programmer. He's done a lot of really good games. He's kind of a big deal. So he was a top five player in the world. His uh, first Papa was Papa 3 in 1993 in New York City, and he was the top qualifier for B Division. He qualified in A Division every Papa year until 2017. Oh my goodness. He is so much better at pinball than me. (laughs) No wonder he can keep a ball alive forever on his games, because I can't. So the, he's, of course, a programmer for software. He did a lot of uh, software education systems for, uh, you know, financial people, uh, colleges, that kind of stuff. So back in the 1990s, a lot of these sort of nerdy computer folk hung out on a program called IRC. Do you remember IRC? I don't. It, it's something <gasps> something chat, right? I thought you were a super nerd. Um, I'm sorry. So IRC was basically a massive chat room to really, to really just bring it down a level. It was a huge chat room. It was literally the dark web, okay? So back in the mid-early 90s, this was the dark web. This is where everybody who generally knew how to do computer stuff would go and hang out. This is where you would uh, pirate software. This is where you would chat with other computer programmers. And oddly enough, this is where Keith Johnson bumped into one Larry DeMar. Now, in 1997, Larry DeMar said he was looking for programmers for the slot machine division because that's where he was hanging out now. He was no longer in pinball. And at Expo that year, Keith chatted with Larry DeMar and Dwight Sullivan when they went to lunch. Keith then would leave his old job and he would start working in slots at Williams Gaming and then eventually he would move into the pinball division where he worked on Pinball 2000. Of course, Keith loves pinball and you can tell that because he's ended up being very, very important to both Stern and Jersey Jack Pinball. Isn't that right? That is right. I mean, the most important thing is he's designed, as far as I know, he designed their, because they did everything from scratch. They didn't use any existing board sets or anything, so... Jersey Jack. Jersey Jack. So he was one of the main architects of their current system that they use, which had to be a ridiculous amount of work. Yeah, he went, like, right from board controllers, operating system, you know, programming language, the whole thing. He basically designed it all. In a fairly short amount of time. And it's worked out rather well, actually, for Jersey Jack. Yeah, except for the initial uh, light boards they had in Wizard of Oz that had issues... I think once they were replaced, it's been pretty solid. Keith Johnson's, uh, I think, biggest year was the year that he released both Lord of the Rings and The Simpsons Pinball Party, one right after another, two of the highest heralded games of the White Star era. So this is when we get into 1995. Williams Controller Board starts to come out uh, with a new WPC95 version towards the end of the year. Cost-cutting. What did they cost cut, Ron? Let's see. So they changed. There's a bunch of things they changed. The back glass, or translite. It you the old system. Most systems people know you remove the thing, and there's an insert panel that you can swing out. They made that all one unit. The tub they called. They had the glass and like a plastic tub that was attached to it with all the lights attached to it and a plug. Right. And each, each bulb would kind of go in and screw in a plastic clip. Um, that again, cost savings. The 
uh, speaker panel. It used to be wood. They made it plastic, and it actually you could it, it you didn't take it out anymore. You could just flip it down. The board set they just they consolidated boards. I'm trying to remember exactly all the boards they consolidated. I think it was like. Because WPC had the driver board, CPU board, sound board, Fliptronics board. So I think they took like the um, the Fliptronics board and the sound board. Oh, and the um, the AV board, the video board. They put them all into one board. And then they made updates to the driver board and the CPU board. I'm trying to remember if that pretty much stayed the same. But it was all consolidation. And they also lost some functionality because the old WPC system, it would have, they'd have five strings of gi that they could control like dim they use triax they basically it's, it's like think of, think of a dimmer switch on a light that's literally what it is instead of a relay off and on you could actually do different light intensities and if okay. you look at any pre-wpc 95 game the back box lighting it dims and comes on just like the, the play field does wpc 95 they eliminated two of the gi strings so the head light is always on it has no effects at all it's always on which is kind of like Stern is now. I think that like the back box light is always on. So when we talk about sort of the WPC 95 games, though, a lot of them are games that have some pretty unique mechanical bits on them that are, are, are still heralded today as some of the, the most fun games. But you're saying a lot of the bits under there were actually cut out. Yeah, consolidation and cheapening out. Even, even basic things like the uh, shooter rod housing that used to be, they had a little Williams logo on it, and then they got rid of that, so it's just generic, because it probably costs more money to stamp a Williams logo in there. Oh, interesting. Yeah, just look at any, like, WPC 95 game with a shoot, shooter. So they were, looking, they were looking not only at dollars, but pennies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was a big time at this time. And in that period is when they laid off a lot of their design staff. Yeah, well, I, I, one thing that they didn't cut which I think is probably one of the strengths of this era is the dot animation, the dot art of this time. And they would use software to make the dot art, which is actually designed by Electronic Arts. You've probably heard of them. It's called Deluxe Animation. And they used that software from 1990 till probably today. I have no idea. They used it at both Bally Williams Pinball and WMS. Of course, DMDs had 128 pixels wide by 30 tall. So each square is a pixel. And it had three levels of intensity or brightness. You'd have 100%, 90%, 75%, or zero. And with that, you would kind of make different animations or or images, and you could make them move across the screen or move or change just by changing the brightness and intensity of one of those square pixels. And they used it for 20 years, when you think about it, close to, to overall, between 91 or around that era when it started to when Wizard of Oz came out. That's, yeah, that's about 20 years of dot matrix. That's longer than um, solid state, you know, just like the uh, digital displays. And HomePin is still using DMD. Yeah. Adam Ryan the, um, says, I definitely went through some pain in just wrapping my head around how to create the illusion of reality in motion using only three colors with 32 pixels high. Of course, uh, the artist would make all of the still images... They would sort of pass the frames over to the programmer. The programmer would take a look, give some feedback, send it back, do some more changes, and then they would sort of stick it into the system. So they still kept the DMD and they still, I'll tell you what, during this era, the DMD colors, I'm sorry, the DMD art at this time really became very, very cool. 
And Adam would say that I don't know what kind of magic or voodoo they did, but it appeared on the depth of screen and choreography that they all wanted and it looked great. So let's get into some games, Ron. People are very bored. We're, uh, you know, 20 minutes in here and they haven't heard a single thing about a game. But uh, the WPC-95, the first game was Congo, is a movie licensed theme, sells 2,129 units, art by Kevin O'Connor, music and sound by Vince Pantarelli, dots by Adam Ryan, software by Bill Grupp and Dean Grover. And you'll see a lot of these names are sort of new on the programming side, right? We don't have those... You know, Larry DeMars that we once had just banging out amazing code, right? Yeah, and Dean Grover works for Stern. He does, he did Beatles and I think all of their whole model pins. He is definitely the elder statesman now, but at this time he was new. Of course, this is the horrible movie Congo. You've seen Congo. I've never seen Congo. I saw Congo in the theater when I was like eight. I'll tell you, listening to the Tim Curry call outs in the game, I want to see Congo the movie. It. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. I guess if you kind of go in expecting it not to be really great and just kind of have fun, it's pretty good. Of course, this is the 1995 science fiction action adventure movie based on the Michael Crichton novel from 1980. Michael Crichton, of course, from Jurassic Park fame. Mm. So why wouldn't you go with another proven book to create an awesome smash hit? Of course, you would, uh, you'd bring in Steven Spielberg for this, wouldn't you? Uh, sure. No, no, Steven Spielberg Uh-oh. didn't do this. Uh-oh. Of course, you'd bring in the John Williams guy to have the masterpiece score that he provided for Jurassic Park. The John too, Williams right? guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, of course not. But I do remember this movie because it had Ernie Hudson in it. Ghostbusters. Of course. And the only reason I remembered that Ernie Hudson was in this movie is because when I, when I remember seeing this movie, I remember going, that's the guy from Ghostbusters. And I don't think I've ever seen him in anything before or anything after. Like, I don't, I don't know what Ernie Hudson has ever done, but I remember him in Ghostbusters. Well, he's in the new Ghostbusters too. Oh, spoiler. Sorry. Sorry. <gasps> uh so it's, uh, of course, it had a $50 million budget back in 1995, which is a big deal. And it did $152 million in the box office. That's pretty it good. Money. It made money. Did its job. And it is a kind of a fun movie. It is kind of fun. Uh, it had a 22% Rotten Tomatoes, so not very good. Generally, I try to avoid anything under 62. I only have so many hours of life <laughs> left. <laughs> The play field on Congo, this is probably one of the best parts of the, of the, of the game, isn't it, Ron? It's a great game. It's probably one of the best shooting games that's ever been made, in my opinion. I have played Congo. I played this at uh, Cabin Fever in Toronto, and I was pleasantly surprised at how awesome this game is. And it wasn't even the first play field. They rejected the original one. Yes. There was a bit of a scramble. Yeah, the, the whole story behind that, which, which you can also hear on my podcast, the Slam Tilt Podcast... Just thought I'd throw that shout out there. The Slam Till Podcast, episode 100, Lyman Sheets, where he stated, which I didn't even know, that Congo, he was on Congo originally, Lyman Sheets. He was on the team, and the original play field was going to be bi-level. It's going to have two two play fields. Interesting. And they just, for whatever reason, cost wasn't working. I don't know. They scrapped it, so he got reassigned to a game you may have heard of called Attack from Mars, and... There you go. Of course, uh, I had mentioned uh, Dots, 
Well, the uh, the art team were provided a lot of references material, reference material, and of course, Adam Ryan had to jump into the project and smash out those dots in record time. Adam says there were a couple of games which I was very frustrated with. They were a little more difficult. They'd fallen way behind on their development cycle. They were forced upon us late. We were told to do it as fast as we could. I don't think I did as good a job as I could have. Of course, this is where the cuts are beginning, right? So. Uh, the the cuts are getting, in fact, deeper at Bally Williams, and everybody, including all these guys, see the the target. You know, if somebody says get this done in a couple of months, you get it done in a couple of months because the axe is falling all around you, right? And I just want to say, I love Congo, and the thing Congo is pretty and the amazing. Thing is, I never got to hear Congo until I actually played it at someone's house and didn't realize the absolutely incredible Tim Curry callouts. Kudos to you, Tim Curry. With I think he was supposed to be from Romania in the movie, so he's got all these like like this accent. You know the hieroglyphics. What do they mean? It's just hilarious. I love it. Multi ball callouts are awesome. Multi ball. I love the 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 flowy shots. It's a really great shooter. But I'll tell you what, it's got hippos, snakes, and killer apes. And that's just on the first ball. <laughs> yeah, we got to read from the uh, <laughs> the flyer. It also has uh, Stan Winston in it. Yeah. Because, the, the, as the story goes, the, it has a gorilla underneath the play field. Uh, originally, the gorilla was supposed to, the original idea was he would actually come up onto the play field and you would battle him like he like th- hit the ball back at you. That would have been cool. But cool. he ended up underneath the play field. Uh, John Trudeau, the designer, he just took his... Um, Creature from the Black Lagoon, like the window, and turned it around the other way. But I guess Stan Winston, who must have had some kind of approval for the game, he didn't like the gorilla. It's like, you're not doing it right. So he did the gorilla himself. So that's really? Stan Winston's gorilla, you see, on the lower play, or the underneath the play field. It does look very, very cool. Uncover valuable collections deep within Congo, trademark. It's time to journey into Congo, an adrenaline-pumping, action-packed pinball adventure based on the hit, movie, and best-selling novel by the author of Jurassic Park. Yeah, they're really playing up that Jurassic Park part. (laughs) Explorers of all levels can navigate through Congo with its accessible shots, obtainable awards. It would suck to have unobtainable awards in the game. And easily understood rules. Only the bravest survive the quest to collect the coveted diamonds by eluding poisonous snakes, escaping threatening volcano, oh, escaping a threatening volcano, which is cool, and defeating a rare species of killer gorillas who guard the lost city of Zinge? Zinc? Zinge. Zinge. Congo is a non-sequential safari. Players can follow the map, weaving through Congo or handpick their favorite adventures. Yeah, very cool. So there's a couple of things in here that it talks about. One of them is diamonds. What's the big deal about the diamond? Well, I mean, in the movie, they're searching for diamonds in the Congo. But when it comes to the game, what is that? What is Collecting that diamonds. It lights locks. It also gets you closer to diamond multi-ball. There's also a diamond hunt multi-ball. So, so like each shot has, has a diamond in front of it. And then you just sort of shoot the blinking it's not, shot. Yeah. Right? It's not always lit. You got to relight them as you go through. One of the cooler features in this, it has a, and it's actually on the flyer. As far as I know, this is the only game that ever used it. Bi-directional ball popper. It's a VUK that basically can fire a ball two different directions. Ooh. 
And, and, and as soon as you see Very it underneath neat. the play field, it's like, whoa, what's this thing? And I don't believe it was ever used anywhere else. Someone can correct me on that, but I don't think so. It's kind of in the center rear between the volcano and the odd sort of ape-looking thing on the left side, right? I think so. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about this volcano shot here. So it has an epic shot that goes through three pop bumpers up a fairly steep ramp, does a U-turn, and comes right yeah. back to the flipper. As Keith Elwin said, that was his inspiration for the left ramp on... Iron Maiden. Yeah, that is basically the other side of the Iron Maiden shot. And I'll tell you, for a player who's not particularly good, I love shooting between pop bumpers to ramps and stuff because the satisfaction that I get from that, the feeling of I made that really difficult shot is pretty great. But when it goes up this ramp and around this volcano, this sort of molded toy, it's even better. It's awesome. It's very, very, very cool. It's got the third flipper, shoots into the target on the side, and it's also got that repeatable loop, kind of orby shot. It's a great game. I mean, the problem with this game is that it is after a very bad movie. And it was one of those games that was stripped for parts to help other games like our next game we're going to talk about. It didn't become a darling Ooh. till later. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. It became a tournament darling, which then sort of pumped up its value, and now you can't find one for less than your firstborn child. Mm. But we've got Attack from Mars. Which David didn't hear my story because he walked away, but Lyman ended up working on that because he got taken off of Congo. So, of course, Attack from Mars, the sci-fi theme from December of 95... Sells 3,450 units. We're talking aliens, Martians, fantasy. It is awesome all around. Doug Watson on art. Music and sound by Dan Forden. Dots, Adam Ryan, Brian Morris. And software by the one Lyman Sheets Jr. Criminally low production number. Brutal. Somebody should remake this Uh, game. uh, Very funny. Doug Watson, of course, was the artist... He did the voice of the Martians, and he wrote a lot of the lines of the script. I just like lines like, if you have Martian attack, lit, and the Martians, they're, they're vibrating, and you, you, you miss one a certain way. It's like, ah, oh, miss me, miss me. I love that. What are the ones that the general says when you shoot, shoot the orbit? Well, there's also, he's just like, damn, shoot those things, or whatever, or whatever he says. You're so ugly, Martians. It's got some great call-outs. It, it's very tongue-in-cheek. It's very fun. It's funny. For some reason, kind of fun, funny, and camp works really well in pinball. Um, and uh, we see enough of it, but we don't see enough of it, I think. When you look at, like, Deadpool, I think is the last real quality game that had some really fun funniness to yeah, it. Yeah, it's amazing. I, and I have a Deadpool and an AFM, and they're right next to each other. Now, let's let's tie that in. According to George Gomez, Attack from Mars was not originally inspired by the movie Mars Attacks. Did I do that? No, that's, that's right. Because if you ever see Mars Attacks and then you see Attack from Mars, it's like, oh, they just didn't want to pay for the theme, obviously. Yeah, well, apparently this is just happenstance. And according to Gomez, Brian Eddy had the concept long before the movie. And it is a mere coincidence that they emerged on the market within a year of each other. I'd buy that. I would certainly buy that as well. Now, this was designed, of course, by Brian Eddy. And why is Brian Eddy a big deal? Because he designed Attack from Mars and Shadow. 
And Medieval Madness. Yeah. So I recently had somebody who uh, listened to our latest podcast who was also at Pintastic, and they played uh, some of the Shadow, and they were unimpressed. Oh, my. Shout out to Tom. Pintastic, which is a show in Massachusetts, if you're wondering what that means. Brian Eddy, he really probably made some of the biggest hits, um, cult classic hits of this era. And that raised him up very, very high in a strata of top 10 designers who only really did three games. So what do we do? We bring him back at Stern and we give him some pretty cool licenses. He did Stranger Things, which not so great at the beginning, but has certainly panned out to be better along the code lines and Mandalorian, which is awesome. Stranger Things is excellent. So Stranger Things, a lot of people say that the shots are very similar to Attack from Mars. Is that true, Ron? Yeah, they're similar, but it's, it's, it's different. It's different enough. It's only so many shots you can have on a play field, man. And if you're going for a fan sort of layout, you're kind of stuck. Now Attack from Mars, you got Tim Kitzrow again, the NBA Jam guy. From downtown! Oh, God, I love him. God, he's in so many good games. He's like everything. Wonderful. Wonderful. He's got, he's got an announcer voice. Only, only we could dream of. Mm-hmm. Mm, wonderful. This has a cow video mode. Of course it does. Brian Eddy was the guy that was into cows. He's the one who started the whole cow thing at Williams when he was a programmer. He would stick them in all the games he worked on. So now that he's designing a game, now it's just like there's a cow on the ramp. There's there's cows everywhere. Yeah, there's a cow being being abducted by aliens on the ramp. Love the cows. Love the cows. So here's the thing. You know when you go to like your crazy uncle's place and his house is like all of the kitchen is decked out in John Deere green things and he's got the John Deere tractors on his bookshelf and stuff like that. Do you think if you go to Brian Eddy's place, it's all like cow themed? Uh, supposedly he had tons of cow stuff in his house, so I would believe it. That's, that's a thing. Mm -hmm. The cow video mode, if you shoot the ball up the big O beam ramp, the one on the left with the cow on it, if the cow moves, hit the launch button. Then when you get into the video mode, the spaceships will be replaced by cows. That's awesome. I don't think I've ever done that. I've seen people do that, but I've never done that myself. Destroy all the cows and you get to the mother cow. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. Yep. It's a good one. It's a good one, Brian Eddy. I'll forgive your creepy uh, cow-themed kitchen for, for that. That's pretty funny. But Attack from Mars is like the ultimate fan layout game. It's the ultimate loop pass game. You can just loop pass back and forth nonstop. Yeah, that's when you're getting into real pro stuff, when you can shoot an orbit and the ball, you can just lift your flipper, it taps that flipper and just catches it with the second one on the other side. That is some proper, proper playing, my friend. Also has a lot of red and orange in the cabinet, which means insto fade. Insto fade. Insto fade. Any type of light, it will fade badly. But remember, Attack from Mars is an unstoppable earnings invasion. Thrills, Big O Beam turns animals into giants. Shocks, flying saucers wreak havoc. And terrors, an army of Martians attacks the Earth. Ooh, scary. Quivering. Mayhem, madness, and destruction were never so much fun. 
God, I love these flyers. Attack from Mars is a fun and entertaining to play. And it's open play field and easy to understand rules. So already we're... I, I notice whenever the games have a very open play field, they advertise how easy it is. Especially operators. Easily cleanable. But if it's like really complicated play field, they just don't say anything. <laughs> yeah, it's like, shh, shh, don't you say know, anything. Whitewater, they were not saying, easy to clean. <laughs> It's a straightforward game that's fun for players of all skill levels. I completely agree. Unique game. I disagree. Rules. I'm not very good at this game. Uh, just hit the the ship over and over. That's the problem. So you shoot the ship in the middle, which is a three, which is a lifting three bank and a dropping three bank in the middle of the playfield, sort of like Tron, I guess, or um, there, you know, Black Knight 2000 had one. Yep. I, I shoot that thing and uh, and I am in immediate death. It is just terrifying. No, it's not. It says right in the flyer. Novice players are able to reach all the exciting game features, while expert players can attempt to rule the universe. So does that mean I'm worse than a novice player? I guess so. Like you can't blow up a single ship. I could blow up a single ship, but go. that's basically it. Well, that's, that's it. That's all you need. It's a great experience. Yeah, but I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna t two the ramps. Right, I want to shoot the ramp. They're pretty and get hard it to, to come... T2. That's it's want... not like payback time. They're they're pretty narrow ramps. What, what what you want to do is just see see the little shot to the left of the ship. You want to hit that a lot. Then you just start. That's like the lock shot, and, right? Yeah, and then, then then you can have fun. Yeah, I guess I am a, a big sci-fi fan. I love sci-fi. I love camp. I love cheese. But for some reason, this game does not suck me in like it sucks people in. Maybe I don't have enough time on it, but wow. I have played quite a bit. I've played quite a bit, but it doesn't, this isn't the game where I'm like, I got to have one of these in my basement. This might be my last episode. Oh, I can't believe this. Wow. I'm, I'm serious. Oh. And I don't know what it is. Like oh. I would much rather play medieval madness. Oh, no, than no, this. no, 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 no. And it has nothing to do with the castle and more to do with all of the other bits. You're, you're more Monty Python than you are sci-fi. I, I guess. I don't know, but shooting that, um, shooting the scoop kind of bothers me in this game. And this one's pretty interesting as well. Cause the pop bumpers in the back will feed into the scoop. And I don't know if, if maybe that's one thing that I don't like, because I feel like I'm in the scoop all the time because I'm missing that ramp and I'm missing the number one target ramp for, for the uh, Martians or the I ramp. I get number one. Good Lord. I feel like I'm in the scoop all the time. Well, if you ever get to America, just come visit and you can play my attack from Mars. Your attack from Mars. Well, it's an original, which is important. It needs to be an original, or it just doesn't play right. Because um, the flippers don't feel right. They don't. One hundred percent. Look at me. I'm a I'm a top one hundred player. No, I just played the original first. I'm sure if I played the remake first, then the originals wouldn't feel right. To be honest, I have only played the remake. There you go. Yeah, true story. That takes us to Tales of the Arabian Nights. Totan. Or Toten. This is the Mystic Fantasy theme, May of 96. Sells 3,128 units designed by John Papaduke. It has its art by Pat McMahon. Music and sound, Dave Zabriskie. Dots, Adam Ryan, Brian Morris. And software by Louis or Louis Kozerish. Kozeris. Kozeris, probably. Kozeris. You'd think we'd get this by now. No, that's our gimmick. We can't say people's names right. So, of course, Arabian Nights is the English name for the Arabic language collection of Middle Eastern folktales known as 1001 Nights. And I'm pretty sure that uh, the genie in the bottle stuff comes from this. Yeah, if you think of like Aladdin, I think Aladdin is in there. 
I don't know for sure. I should have looked that up. You know, up. I think I've actually seen Aladdin. Oh, Aladdin is great. That's the one with Robin Williams in it, right? Yeah. Yes, okay, I saw that one. Big time good. Probably why I watched it. But uh, Adam Ryan says, I like that kind of theme. I like the Middle Eastern theme. A little more flair to the visuals. The music was very good in that game. I think it's just a pleasure. Papa Duke was just a great guy to work with. And you can see that when Adam Ryan has had a longer time to work on the dots like he did in this game over Congo, there is a level of care that he had put into the dots on Tales of the Arabian Nights that he didn't necessarily have on Congo. Tales of the Arabian Nights is, some would herald John Papa Duke's best or second best game certainly top three, and it is one that goes for a serious dollar on the secondary market before things went absolutely crazy. Eh, his best game is his first. Yeah, World Cup soccer? That's what most people say. Most people that know how to play pinball. As far as play field goes, though, this is, if you want long, flowing plastic ramps and magnets, this is the game for you. This game is awesome. I love this game. I, I like theater of magic more when it comes to the actual gameplay, but this game has some flair and some pizzazz that few games today have. If any, this game is all about just whimsy and magic and flow and fun and the ball ending up and doing things that you didn't expect it to do. It suffers though on code. Is that right? I don't, I've never really played it that much. I know the tournament strategy is not that, it it has that bug where you can get in what the final wizard mode and just keep it going forever if you do it right or something like that. Yeah, well, see, I can't even fill up all the lights on the bazaar, so (laughs) I'm I'm not getting that far, Ron. Come on. I I know the, Uh, the, the, the lamp was overpowered. Like if you got into the, what, lightning, lightning lamp? Especially if you're a multi-ball, you just hit the lamp over and over and over again, and then you end up winning. Yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about um, Tales of the Arabian Nights. But we have to, of course, start with, your wish is granted. Let me guess, that's the flyer. Experience the seven tales of Arabian Nights. Battle the evil genie to rescue the princess. Spell G-E-N-I-E, or genie, to light locks and pinball wishes below the play field in the bazaar that reappears to begin with three ball multi-ball <gasps> spin aladdin's lamp spin the magic lamp and watch the bonus grow the bonus explodes in the lightning crash when the blue lights lead the lamp are lit wow very good it's exciting it's very whimsical and it has a story too you got to rescue the the princess. Yeah. So we're getting into something here that's another level. And this is what John Papaduke would do. We spoke about this a little bit in our uh, Mechs That Made Us episode, a couple episodes back. You can check that out at silverballchronicles.com. You can watch, um, sorry, you can listen to that there in the archives. Please go back and listen to older episodes because we fill in a lot of the gaps you may have. John Papaduke would add a little level of pizzazz. It would bring in more than just sort of the rocking music kind of thrill cars testosterone person, right? He tried to bring a level of, of, of sizzle to the stake. Sometimes that sizzle um, was all there was in his games, but this is certainly one that I think is, is a great package. It's a world under glass, a world of wonder. 
<laughs> it's something else. I'll tell you, one of the neat bits is the plunge here, right? So you, you've got a skill shot that rotates between sort of like three baskets and there's a stand-up target in each basket and you kind of shoot the ball and it lands in that and then it hits the ramp and then it comes down to your flipper. It's kind of neat, although it's kind of anticlimactic, right? Like it's not, I don't know, when you do it, it's, it doesn't feel that great. Uh, it's your snake charmer. You got to hit the right one or you, the snake uh, bites you. Yeah, but it just, I don't know, it just doesn't, like the kinetic satisfaction to use a cliche just doesn't, it doesn't, I don't know. It's timing it into the bucket much is the fun. same thing as um, World Cup soccer. Right. So he's kind of recycled it, made it maybe better than World Cup soccer. But at the same time, it just, it, I don't know, it's just, it's not particularly fun. He definitely made crazier ramps in World Cup soccer. Like, there wasn't enough plastic. I need even longer and uh, just wavier, loopier ramps. And I'll tell you what, at least the skill shot is better than Guns N' Roses. Which one? So you got to preface the, that now. The, the, the new one, ah. the new one. Nobody talks about the old one. No one, they have the same name. Well, actually, you're wrong. The old one was called Guns N' Roses. The new one's called like Guns N' Roses Not In This Lifetime, I believe is the full title. You need to give our listeners the right information. Let's talk about let's talk about the ramps. Oh, okay. So the ramps are pretty cool. So there's a, a ramp on the left side, um, just after the orbit, and that ramp goes up and then kind of around in a. It's almost like a what do, what do I want to call that? Like a whirlwind or whirlwind or a spiral or. John Papaduke likes long plastic ramps, diverters, and magnets, and this has all of them. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, that's what I love about pinball. I love diverters. There's not enough diverters in pinball nowadays. Ah, no wonder you love Congo. There's not enough um, kind of interesting ball movement beyond, you know, shooting up a ramp and having to come I'll, back I'll agree to with a you different there. place. Come on, pinball manufacturers. We want our diverters. Bring them back. The best diverter we've seen, of course, is the new Godzilla by Keith Elwin. The whole building is a diverter, but that's only Which is pretty on cool. the higher models, though. But the fun thing about this this game is you'll shoot up a ramp and then, you, you know, you might just not make it. You might not make it up the ramp, but then the ball kind of goes back down the ramp and then into like a hole and then it'll boop, pop out somewhere else on the play field rather than back down the ramp. I, I hate going up a ramp and not making it and it coming right back at me. I understand that that's important, but having it go up and fall out somewhere interesting is cool too. And it's got that cool ball saver thing, the spikes that come up. Out of the play field. Yeah. Let's talk about that. The first time you see that, because you can't really tell it's there, then it comes up and saves your ball. It's cool. It's like a Magna save, right? So back when Steve Ritchie did it, they also did it, he did it in Theater of Magic, is that there's a magnet under the play field that goes to the outlanes that sticks in a magnet. Well, Tales of the Arabian Nights literally have spikes that come up from the bottom on the left and right side, almost like a cage, right? Mm-hmm that stops the ball and then the cages come down and then it goes in mostly into the in lanes. That is something else. That is crazy talk nowadays. It has a really cool like genie bash toy in the back. So it's not a genie on a piece of plastic with like targets in front of him that you hit. It's literally a molded plastic toy that you hit and it bounces and it has a switch under there and you hit the genie himself. Super awesome. But let's talk about the magnet that sits in front of the genie. So a magnet in front of a bash toy is not something new, right, Ron? It is not. But what does this one do? It actually grabs it and then goes underneath the play field. Holy moly. <laughs> it hits the magnet. The magnet holds the ball and then the magnet goes under the play field, pulling the ball down. And then the magnet comes back up and there's no ball. What, a, what Stern game uses the same mech? 
Ooh. Like Led Zeppelin? No. Oh, we're talking we're talking the premium metallic. Yep. It literally is the same thing. It just has to hammer over it so it, it gives a different effect, but it's literally the same thing. Yeah. Yep. Super, super awesome. The other thing is that it has this the genie is throwing like a fireball, and the fireball itself is like a circular magnet. And he would use this uh, previously in theater of magic, but this time it's it's vertical. And when it's when the ball is going down the ramp on the left side, the magnet will engage and suck the ball inside of it, and then let the ball go, and it goes down a wire form across the playfield to the other flipper. For those at home, you can always tell which games David really likes because they're the ones we spend more time on. Oh, man, I love this game. I really, really Attack for bars. Really can we just go on to the next game? Can we go, okay, I want to talk about Tales from the Arabian Nights. What do you think of the art package of this game? Uh, I like the playfield art. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of busy. It's very busy. Like most Papa Duke games, it's very busy, but it's very purple, but the, very blue. But the playfield is also very busy. Sometimes the playfield's busy to hide the fact there's not much on the playfield. That is not the case here. There is so much going on in this game. It is it is something else. Now, of course, games at this time were designed to make money. They were on a production timeline, and they had to have above average earnings. Success was determined on that. If you could get it out the door you could make money. That was all that mattered. Well, um, John Papaduke or J-Pop didn't really fit well into that system. The system was designed to be quick and refined. And J-Pop was much more slower and calculated with his designs. He said he was broken down by the Williams team and built back up to withstand the stress and pressure at Bally Williams and the philosophy that came around that. Bally was softer when he worked there, but Williams, boy, they would tell you that your project sucked and you had to try harder. And it was really, really designed to try to get the best out of people. To, to clarify, if John Papaduke actually worked at Bally like in the mid 80s. And then when Bally and William, well, when Williams bought Bally, he didn't have a green card, so he had to leave. And then he came back later. So when he says Bally was softer, he means like the original Bally. He was the millennial of his time, <laughs> right? Sure. He, w- he did not respond well to harassment. He didn't uh, respond well to people, you know, yelling at him and telling him that they're the boss and this is how it gets done. He really struggled in that, um, let's say, shark tank. And oddly, though, once he left that shark tank, he couldn't get anything out the door. So I guess they all sort of brought the best out of each other. Well, J-Pop would say, you'd take two days off, and when you got back, your manager would say he needed to talk to you. What happened was while you were away, a group of people, other designers, management engineers, would look over your game and say, we don't like this on your game, and we'd like to change it. I was a new designer, and I had to deal with that. All the time, he would leave, and he'd come back, and he'd have to take stuff Stop out leaving. change something. There you go. Yes. So that is actually what he would talk about in this podcast. Now, I started listening to a podcast, Coast to Coast Pinball with J-Pop. Ah, Yes which is a very controversial episode of Coast to Coast. I found it and I started listening to it and I was doing all of my notes and stuff. And then I went back to that exact same source about a month later and the episode is now gone. So when it comes to a J-pop episode, I'm having a difficult time finding primary sources, sources from individuals who were there speaking at the time about certain things of the time. 
So I'm going to have a difficult time making uh, a deeper J-pop episode, especially when it comes to the Zidware stuff, which is probably why that episode is not online anymore. And I listened to it back in the day. I don't, there wasn't any earth-shattering things on there that I remember. Yeah. So if anybody happens to have that Coast to Coast episode saved somewhere, I would love to hear it because I can get some cool, cool stuff from it. Anywho, tying this back in, he really struggled. And I'll tell you what, one of the things that they had a significant issue with, particularly people like uh, Steve Ritchie, who was always very good at giving his opinion, was the genie lamp. Now, of course, this lamp is not something that J-pop had invented. It was actually borrowed from an older electromechanical game, which had a similar spinning lamp. Actually, I'm sure several EMs had the spinning, the spinning mech. But they didn't do it as pretty and beautiful as of course. J-pop. So the Tesseract on Transformers is not, not at the level of the lamp. Not unless you like take the Christmas ornament and put it on there and it flashes. That one's pretty cool. Plus it breaks a lot. I, I don't think I've seen yeah. the lamp one break. That's interesting. So J-pop would also say, I would get feedback on the game. The rules are bad or this rule sucks. But at the time, it was the best game we could make from that time frame. The game worked really well, and it made upwards of $350 to $400 a day. I take that. Woo! That's a big deal, man. And that's like, we're talking, what, 50 cent plays back then? Yeah, it would have been 50 cent. Yeah. Whoa, that's a big deal. Let's get into another one here. Scared Stiff. This is the camp and horror theme. September of 96 sells 4,028 units. Art by Greg Freres. Music and sound by Dave Zabriskie, Dots, Adam Ryan, Brian Morris, and software by a gentleman named Cameron Silver. From Australia. G'day, mate. Oh. Let's put another shrimp on my barbie. Oh my goodness. My father loves this game. This is, of course, this is the second Elvira game. Elvira, of course, is the sexiest vamp this side of Transylvania. She was a TV host from California where they watched a lot of campy and cheesy horror movies at late night. She is certainly a cult character. Yeah, is that correct? Yeah, was it Movie Macabre or something like that, the, the show she hosted? It was sort of like a, a not funny Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh, she was funny. I guess. She wouldn't like insult. She would... The, and be t breaks during the movie, she would make little comments. Yeah, it was like before the commercial or yep. after the commercial, right? And and she has a huge, huge following. Um, I don't get it, but of course, I didn't grow up in that time. So, uh, you know, what do you You're do? You're not cool. We get it. I understand that. I, I fully embrace that I will never be as cool as somebody like Steve Ritchie. If Attack from Mars was too difficult for you, then Scared Stiff is your game. Anyone could get to the wizard mode in this game. Anyone. This game is is a Dennis Nordman classic. Ah, the Nordman. It's so fun, it's scary. Is it? Scared Stiff, Bally's new licensed pinball starring Elvira, the sexiest vamp to this side of Transylvania, will scare the quarters out of players everywhere. Yes. This is under the Bally name and not the Williams name. It's a Williams game. It's just a, it's just a name. It, it's, it, this is sort of like what? Like, why do they just switch those around? Now I've heard other, I've heard um, some of the designers talk about that. I think we talked. That the Williams guys did not want to be anything. But yeah. Williams. And I think we talked about this on an episode where like, or I heard it on a podcast somewhere. Like if it was a sexier type title, it would be a Bally 
because that they were known for. It's just like they had weird things like that. I mean, Dennis Nordman was originally from Old Bally, so a lot of his games are Bally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Elvira has the features that turn players on. It, you mean like the, the cabinet in the back, the box? The industry-first interactive 3D backglass. It has a spider web in the backglass with a spider, and he spins, and you can control him. You can stop him, and he'll stop at various awards. Okay, okay. Sort of like the mystery award, but instead of it just being on the DMD, it's kind of got a, an interactive thing. If you're good enough, you can pick exactly what you want. Ah, so it's not random. Nope, skill-based. Very cool. And um, the art on this game, um, fairly risque with the back glass, I gotta say. Um, not offensive, but certainly risque. Um, she has a lot of control over the way her character is uh, presented. Greg Freres did the original um, Elvira and the Party Monsters art, so this game really ties in very well with the previous one. And it will also tie in very well to the next Elvira game. So I think this is a really, really cool design, really interesting um, mechs art. It's It's all in. It's a really, really great package. Now, of course, we see the return of the Deadheads, right? The Deadheads. You got all the different heads, which with hilarious comments. Yeah, they were all like off Sleepy head. I think bad head is Steve Ritchie. Good head, as she says, my favorite. Oh, my. The interesting thing about this is in the back, there's like this molded plastic sort of stack of heads called the dead heads in the mm-hmm. back corner. Originally, in the original design, there was actually an upper play field back there. And that was cut out because of cost cutting. There was other cost cutting just from this. We're looking at the flyer picture. There's cost cut. I think, let me see if I remember some of them. I think there was LEDs in the deadheads that were removed, but you can put them back. Like the The eyes. eyes. If you look at the flippers in the flyer, you see the the bony fingers over the flipper bats. That wasn't done in production. That was removed as cost cutting. Now it's a mod and everyone has put it in their scared stiff to the point where you just think that's how it came, but that's not how it came originally. Yeah. There's also the coffin lock on the left side where players lock three balls and unleash a monster. It's multi-ball. Yep. And Tim Kitzrow is back again as the generic Dracula sounding guy. This thief in the coffin. Oh, that's me. And he kills, he kills it. it. He's in the latest Elvira game also. Yeah. This has to be the peak of what he did when it comes to, because it is, this is right up his alley and you can tell he's having a time. Hey, Pinheads, I just wanted to let you know that when I'm not doing this podcast and making bad jokes, I'm Dave the Financial Guy. At Dennis Financial, our advisors strive to provide a return on life for our clients, not just a return on investment. The value of advice is something that we take very seriously. A valuable advisor doesn't just provide investment advice, they share wisdom. And this is where the true value of an advisor emerges. Don't take my word for it. Just listen to Ron Sterling, an average Canadian. Yay. If you're in Canada, Dennis Financial is for you. If you're looking for a more human dimension to your financial advice, Dennis Financial Inc. has you covered with advisors licensed in most Canadian provinces. We're also doing secure online video meetings. Contact me via email at david at dennisfinancial.net for a free rate quote and a copy of our Value of Advice ebook, or check out dennisfinancial.ca. Insurance solutions provided by Dennis Financial Inc., Canadian residents only. 
Greg Ferreira says, Cassandra, Cassandra Peterson, was an amazing celebrity, wonderful to work with, easygoing and receptive to ideas. Cassandra signed a Whitewood of Scared Stiff. Somewhere there is a Whitewood with Cassandra's signature in red on the bottom right. Ooh, betcha that's worth a penny. Because my goodness, even Stern can sell theirs with a piece of her couch, or a couch, signed by her for 20 mm-hmm. grand. Now, of course, there was a... Um, serious false start with this project. They were they were very much overwhelmed at the time at Bally Williams, but they did eventually get started. The idea was, let's put something in the back box. And that certainly became a big home run. And that's where the spider came from. Smarky, who is Cassandra Peter's husband, is on the back glass as a tribute to him. Well, it's husband at the time. Husband at the time. He has passed away. He has? I think I so. I, they got divorced. I didn't think he died. Oh, maybe they did. All right. Well, anyway, he's dead. Oh. <laughs> wow. Now there was uh, the 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 mini playfield I had mentioned earlier was actually in the in the shape of a spider, and the spi- there were a bunch of spiders that were made to stick to that. But when it was cost cut, they just took the spiders and stuck them around on the playfield in places. The uh, deadheads were originally behind the box on the left side, but when that playfield was removed, they needed to fill the spot. And that's where they moved everything in. Uh, in fact, some of the spiders were actually replaced with frogs. And there's a frog mode. <gasps> What's in the frog mode? Is that fun? That's where you the the splatter the flo- frogs or whatever. There's the frogs on the slings that go up when you hit the slings or whatever. Or no, what, what do you, no? You hit a post and a frog comes up. It's been a while since I played Scare Stick. It's sort of like they're leapers. leapers that's they? it. Leapers, leaper mania, or something like that. It's called. Yeah, it's a cool game. I kind of like this game. It's kind of fun. It's not one that I could have in my living room because of the sort of the risque nature. Uh, shooting the box is pretty cool. You want to talk about that? It's the crate. Yeah, the crate. I'm sorry. Oh, God. Those don't mix a box well, and a crate uh, up. I'm just, that's what it's called in the game. The, the terror in the crate. Terror from the crate. What's the difference between a box and a crate anyway? Uh, I think a crate is more like made out of wood. And a box okay. is like cardboard. At least that's what I kind of think. So the, si- the size has nothing to I do with it. I don't think so. So you could have a small yes, crate. Yes, you could have a small crate. And basically, you just you pound on the crate until you you break through it. Yeah, and then and then it kind of opens, yep. and then you shoot into it. It doesn't open like you hit it, and it, it's it's it, it lets the ball go into it. Yeah, that's cool. Yep, it's a cool little toy, and it's got these uh, eyes on the top of the box, yep. right? And as you shoot the box, you get like it lights up a set of the two mm-hmm. eyes, and then when you light them all up, then you can get because you're waking up the, the terror in the crate. Then he's gonna grab you. Now, if John if John Papaduke loves ramps, I mean. The king of ramps has to be the, the Nord man. You got the bony beast ramp. Is that a double entendre? I don't know. You know what it is? Is the stiffometer with the different oh. levels of stiffness. How stiff can you get? Yes. Dennis Nordman would actually be canned from Bally Williams during this time. And he would, right when it was about to go into production, was out the door. Very, very sad to see Dennis Nordman go. Yeah, John Trudeau would say, you come into the office one day and your pass wouldn't work. It was that cold. The pass should have been green, but it came up red. I thought something screwed up and someone came out the door and I came in. I went to my room and Larry came by and said, we got to talk. That was it. Me, Barry Ausler, and Dennis Nordman gone. And the exact same day, all of them gone. Three of the best sort of interesting designers out the door. Yeah, and Steve Ritchie was gone at this point also. He had gone over to, I think, their video game division. He might have even went to Atari. 
which I think Williams bought yeah. at the time. And, and we've got, you know, we've got, uh, you know, George Gomez who's left, who's, who's a young guy in his thirties at the time. Well, he's, he's left as in, he's still there. At the right. Movie. It's like, no, he didn't leave. <laughs> but all these, all these fellas, all these, these top sort of designers are all out the door now and they've sort of left the youth in place. You got Brian Eddy, you got George Gomez. Who's the other guy? Papa Duke. J-pop. Now, Greg Ferreras, he would say it was a shock when Dennis was let go. While working on Scared Stiff, I lost a lot of sleep over that. So you can see that losing somebody like Dennis, and Dennis and Greg worked really closely together back in their Bally days, right? They were hand in hand when it came to the art of their games. And, you know, that's tough to see your friend go like How about that. Barry Ausler? He was there since the 70s. Barry Ausler, of course, was the staple and the one who basically kept the lights on and produced pins when there was nobody else there except for the janitor. Barry said, I didn't see it coming. I saw dozens of layoffs over my time and it hit me like a brick. Dwight Sullivan would finish up Junkyard with the engineering team, which is what Barry Ouser was working with at the time. Now, there are still pins being made though at this time. And that brings us to NBA Fast Break, which is the sports basketball theme. March of 97 sells 4,414 units. That's actually a pretty decent yeah. seller. Art by Kevin O'Connor, uh, mechanics by Tom Capera, uh, designed by George Gomez, music by Kevin Quinn, dots by Adam Ryan, and software by Bill Uban. So this, this is a game that is a little bit different than most. Oh, yeah. Do you know your 90s NBA trivia? I, I don't know any NBA oh, trivia. Because it will give you an advantage on this game when you play the trivia video mode. There's a trivia video mode? Yep. Do you know this is the only authentic NBA licensed pinball? The only authentic one? Yep. So Hoops is not NBA? No. From Gottlieb? Nope. And Jordan is not in this game. He would have been a separate, he would have been a separate license. Of course. He was he his would. own thing. He was, the, he was the shill of his day. Yeah. Real NBA scoring. Well, that doesn't make sense. It, it does. There's baskets. And when you get a basket, it's two points. When you make a three-pointer, point, three pointer, it's three points. How do you get three points? Just like it's three-pointer. You make a long-distance shot. Four, three, four, three, four, three. It's got a cool back box toy. Flipper, you can make more baskets. You can set it to regular scoring if basketball scoring is just too crazy for you. It's too crazy for you. Like you can't do the math? You know, only Bally can put the... NBA spin on pin. Huh? The NBA spin on... I don't... Only Bally can put the NBA spin on pin. Somebody reached out to us and said that we need to do a collective episode on our favorite and most unfavorite of our flyers. Yeah, that one is just weird. That... And I mean, Bally Williams, theirs are just bad. The Gottlieb ones were fun, but these are bad. Well, I think the Gottlieb ones had to make the game sound better than they might actually be. NBA shot clock. Just like re- real NBA game action. It's not real NBA. It's pinball. No, it's it's got a basket. It's got defenders. You pass. Can we the talk ball. about how the basket looks like a toilet? Uh, a Canadian toilet or something? I don't know. That too many metal toilets like this, but no. But it's got the shot clock in the back, and then it's got the thing in the front. It just doesn't okay, look. It looks okay, okay. The overhead shot, yeah, kind of looks like a toilet. It looks toilety. Now this is a this is um uh, George Gomez's follow up from Corvette. Nah, it wouldn't be Corvette, because he did, he did Corvette, he did Johnny Mnemonic. Oh, I mean, Johnny, wouldn't it? Yeah. 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 So it'd be the follow-up from Johnny. Yeah. 
you know, he worked really well with Tom Capera. Yeah, he was his main engineer guy. And 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 he works at Stern now, Tom Capera. This is this this game, although odd, um, and different, is actually quite cool. So you, the object is basically to shoot up the middle into the basket, right? Well, it, it, it's to score baskets a variety of ways. But it also has a fan layout, and it's got three ramps. It's got return ramps. It's, it's got an orbit shot. It's, it's got a bunch of vertical up kickers. And it has a moving shot block guy yep. in the middle. Yep. Can you, it, it's sort of like if you've seen the Dracula toy in Monster Bash. But this one is designed to move left to right and cover up the basket from yeah. various shots. And it has an action button. Ooh. Ooh. It basically just says, I think, shoot. It's, you hit it to shoot the ball. And it has a lot of vertical up kickers where you can move from one vertical up kicker to another to move, like to pass your shot. It's, it's a very confusing game. They're, they're ejects. A vertical up kicker, I think, it was, is, you know, it goes directly up. Uh, These are just like ejects. This it's like the um, it would be like well, you're a Papa Duke guy, Circus Voltaire. You know the lock yeah. stuff on the left where it, it flips the ball from one saucer the to another. Jugglers, yeah, the juggler. It's literally the same thing. Now it also has a mechanical back box feature, which looks to be like the trend nowadays. Yep. That back box animation consists of a flipper in the lower right part of the back box and a basket on the far left. The game controls the back box flipper sometimes when you score points. So for instance, after you set up uh, an amount of pop bumper hits during multiball and during the Egyptian soda and hot dog mania <laughs> I love that, Egyptian soda. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds great. I want a band called Egyptian soda. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. Now the exception is that, <laughs> the exception is pizza power shot modes. Now, in this mode, the player tries to score as many points as possible in the back box basket. The number of points depends on the amount shown on the screen. Yep. And the, the voice work, Tim Kitzrow again. Kills it. He kills it. Because he did NBA Jam. Yep. That's, his, that's yep. his thing. His, he's, the, he's the NBA Jam guy. So he knows what's expected four, of him. Four, three, four, three, four, two, three, four, three. That's when you're in the back box and you keep shooting. Yeah, it's so cool. So cool. You forgot the coolest part. What's that? You can link them. Oh, Ooh. my goodness. The linking. The linking. This is something else here. Yeah. You can link the machines so you can play against each other, which I've done a few times. I go into a couple shows where they've actually had them linked. You, you literally just play a regular game, but like you pick a team and the person you're linked with, they pick their team, and then you can see how many... Uh, points they've scored and they can see how many points you scored. So it's not really head to head more than you're just trying to score more baskets than they are. George Gomez did an interview with this week in pinball back in September of 2019, where he talked about his idea for a game called armed and dangerous armed and dangerous was an experiment, which was a non pinball game, which went through three or four iterations. It was basically a tank battlefield kind of theme where balls would continuously feed to the flippers in rapid succession and you would shoot at tanks on the playfield. Now this is very much like rapid fire Hyperball. back in the day and hyperball from Williams. Yeah, exactly. Hyperball so, is first. Mm-hmm. So part of that was that he thought it would be cool to link games together to play against each other. 
And that would eventually become the software or the idea for the software for NBA Fastbreak. Tom says, part of what I did when I was writing that software is write some linking code that let two games link up. That's the code that I use in NBA in order to do the link NBA game. Very, very cool. Of course, Armed and Dangerous would not ever come to existence, but at least some of those ideas that Gomez thought up when he was either in the shower or on the can would eventually make it into a pinball game. The other thing that I find super cool about this game, the cool 90s music, <laughs> it's got great, is it? It's so 90s. So we nice. can certainly tell the games that Ron really likes oh, yeah. because he wants to talk all about the games that Ron likes. I like NBA Fest. He doesn't want to talk about Tale of the Arabian Night. I he talked about talk it. About... <laughs> Over the years, Adam Ryan has popped into a lot of these games here that we're talking about. This guy is banging out dots left and right. And over the 26 years that he worked for Bally Williams in the, in the 90s and then freelance at Pat Lawler Designs in the 2000s, he did NBA, Totan, Junkyard, Revenge for Mars, Ripley's, NASCAR. I want to give a little bit of background on Adam. He attended Northern Illinois University where he studied illustration. He says that he only had one Macintosh. He says there was only one Macintosh computer in the whole school and everybody had to share it and learn. The professors said that they wouldn't see a computer for another four or five years once you exited university and got into the field when you were working. Wow, was he certainly wrong. Ron, when you got out of university, immediately the computer was super important, especially in that late 80s, early 90s transition. Now, this is certainly when Photoshop burst into the commercial scene. Now, while at Williams Gaming, Adam and the other co-workers would sneak over to the pinball division and they would play pinball. Now, pinball, of course, was on the second floor of the California Avenue building. Midway was on the first floor. And they would often spend some time kind of going from one building across the alley into the other. This is where Adam got to work on his first game after sort of you know, making some connections over on the pinball division. And that was with Corvette. He would, of course, do that with George Gomez and come on at the end of the project and do a lot of the shoot again and replay animations. That's where he really learned a lot of those bits and pieces. Now, the NBA fast break dots, you know, there's over 140 different portraits when you start with that. As for the NBA game itself, which Adam, he had to move from the images to actual dots. So they were given images by the NBA and he had to change those images into dots, which must have been super, super difficult. Mm -hmm. Adam says, I was not given all the reference material. I had to go surf the web to find some of these rookies who became starters, and there were no photos of them on the web. I had to go to the research magazines or find action shots of them and try to make them look like portraits. It was a complete nightmare. Yeah, so they, they told them, they, you have to use our specific reference materials, but then the stuff in the game didn't have all of those specific reference materials. That's kind of annoying. It's also got a really cool topper if you're all into toppers. It's kind of got like this marquee thing that kind of goes around the outside. Mm -hmm. I guess it's kind of cool. I don't get toppers, but whatever. NBA Fast Break, baby. It's got all the team names on them. That's kind of fun. Mm -hmm. It's got some Easter eggs. 
Crazy Bob's is back. Yes, Crazy Bob. And you'll remember Crazy Bob from Johnny Mnemonic, as well as in the future, Crazy Bob will be in... He's in other games. Dialed in. Dialed in. Yeah, Crazy Bob's gets around. Now, of course, he was the hot dog vendor. Where else would Crazy Bob Mm -hmm. be? Some crazy... I don't know what he's got. Chili on there. Chili dogs. That's a crazy hot dog. NBA Fast Break's one of the games with Midnight Madness. So what's Midnight Madness? If you're playing the game and it hits midnight, something happens. <gasps> mm-hmm. Would you say madness happens? Uh, could be, depending on the game. Yeah, so during this round, a cow actually might appear on the display in Midnight Madness. Because mm-hmm. that's a joke. That's a thing. Speaking of madness. <gasps> oh, here we go. Oh, God. This will be another half hour on this game. Medieval Madness. Medieval Madness, yes. The the knockoff Monty Python yep. medieval castle attack theme. June of 97, designed by Brian Eddy. It sells 4,016 units. Not very many. So, you know, if somebody would remake that, it would probably go well. That joke is already losing its steam. <laughs> Art by John Yossi, Greg Freres. Dots and animation by Adam Ryan and Brian Morris. The mechanics was done by Robert Frizzell. Frizzle? And music, sound, Dan Forden. Software by one Lyman F. Sheets Jr. This was the pin side number one pin forever. Um, which is a big, big feat to do to be a game so old competing with sort of those modern Sterns dealing with the, the, the Sterns that are existing nowadays. At the time of this recording, Medieval Madness is actually behind Heist by Multimorphic mm. and Godzilla. <laughs> Sorry, I had to put that in there because that has a lot of people pretty ruffled in the feathers. Mm-hmm. Hey, shout out to Multimorphic. Good for you. Sandbag in the top 100. Now this is... An amazing game. I love this game. I don't know what it is about this game. I think it's just that it's the all-in, all-package. It's good. I mean, it's almost as good as Attack from Mars. Behold the renaissance of pinball. Medieval madness. Defeat the king and his men to stop the madness and restore order to this great land. Mm -hmm. You got to destroy the yonder castle. You got to Battle two wretched trolls. Oh, the trolls. Love the trolls. Love them. Yeah. So this this machine is best known for the huge castle in the back corner. And you can, you can bash it in multiple states. Basically, the drawbridge is up and you can hit it. And then the drawbridge lowers. And then there's like a gate behind it. And you hit the gate a couple of times and then the gate lifts up. And then you can shoot into the castle. And then the castle kind of collapses and shakes and rattles and then comes back together. And then you kind of go to the next castle attack. Yep, and each castle is a different bad guy that you're defeating. Who has amazing call-outs. Yep. Wonderful, wonderful call-outs. And there's also like a, like a catapult mini ramp on the left side of the door. So if you happen to miss sort of the the entrance way to the castle there's like this swinging sort of breakaway catapult smashing into the castle part which is cool catapult it's just like a door you mean the lock well, it's like a door but it's supposed to be like you're shooting your catapult and the ball goes through the the wall uh, uh, 
that's going to be confusing when you mention the actual catapult that's on the left side. Right. So the shot the furthest to the left, all the way over to the left, just above the tip of the tip of the sling is like a saucer. It goes into the saucer and then it shoots the ball kind of somewhat vertically into a wire form, which then goes around yeah. the corner in behind. It's literally the catapult mech. And you can pick what object you throw, which I love. Yeah. <laughs> so we're talking basketballs, a uh, cow, surprise. Bowling ball. My favorite, the cat. The you cat, pick the cat right. As he throws it through the air. <laughs> I think there's a skull. This game, it just makes me smile. It's so much fun. It's stellar all around. It's a fairly easy shooter. The ramps are pretty wide open. Most of the shots are pretty wide open. Again, it's not the absolute perfection of a fan layout, but it's basically a fan layout. Mm -hmm. it, 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 you know what I mean? Like it's not attack from Mars perfection, but it is still pretty amazing nonetheless. So we talked about the trolls just briefly. So what do they do? They pop up literally from the bottom of the play field. They just pop up <laughs> and you hit them and they say all kinds of funny things. So if you brick, if you brick too many shots, and by bricking, I mean, you're not shooting the ramps or you're not shooting the castle. These dudes pop up and then they block basically two major shots and you got to shoot them in the face to lower them down a couple of times. And you don't just shoot like a target in front of them again, right? You smash the bash toy, the actual like face of the dude. And they're pretty detailed little sculpts. Pretty cool. Mm -hmm. When I first saw this game, like in person, I saw the original sort of Williams version. And, um, the first thing I said was, can I see under the play field to, to my friend who showed me a uh, shout out to Pete. And, um, I was like, I was like, man, I got to see how the subway works and how the, you know, when you're shooting the castle, you know, where does the ball go in and around? Well, it's, it's sort of designed as like a moat, right? Like literally there's a subway piece of plastic moves left to right on the play field. So anytime the ball goes into the castle or in front of the castle, into the moat, it falls into this subway and then over and back around, kind of around to the orbit and it pops back up. It's so cool because it's just interesting to see that and how the trolls work. So nerdy. <laughs> I thought the trolls popped up as a Merlin award. Like when you hit it in the Merlin's saucer there. Yeah, but th that's how they pop up. So, so you build them up from the bricking, I think, and then it goes into Merlin and then it ah. comes up. Well, Adam Ryan, the dot matrix artist says, I remember that the team sat in a room. We were going to bring the attack from Mars team back together. We knew what pressure we were under. Everyone wanted Brian Eddie to make another attack from Mars. He even shared that pressure with us that we really needed to do attack from Mars, but better. How are we supposed to top that? Yeah, well, you top it with the theme because, man, the, the, the funniness and camp of this theme takes medieval madness to a level that Attack from Mars was not part of. Like, Attack from Mars was funny and it had some great quotes, but the, the silliness went up a notch and it worked so well. Well, Adam also says, we started working on the game and it ended up being like a Monty Python ripoff. It was going to be in that vein. The idea was going to be storming the castle. In fact, it took months to name that game. We still have a page of about 50 names where we were bouncing around. None of them seemed to stick. Yeah, so Doug, Doug Watson was out. He was uh, around this time. He was part of another large layoff round at Bally Williams. And of course, 50% of the engineers went at that time. That's when John Yousey was brought in to replace Doug on the art package. So that's why there is a split art package group here. 
And um, you can certainly see on the back glass, that's John Yowsey through and through, right? It's got that soft cartoon look that Yowsey is best known for. But I'll tell you, when you look at some of the silly and fun details of that backlash, you can tell that John Yossi was in his wheelhouse. Yep. We've got a, a cow on the left side being raised in the air by a Merlin. You've got damsels in distress coming out of their, um, their towers. There's one uh, lady in, in armor and high boots down in the moat. You got spray paint going up. The king is a queen. Yeah, that's yeah, that's censored now. So yeah, that wouldn't go. No, well th- there are several items censored on this glass at this point. It's certainly uh, 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 an interesting, interesting game. One of the fun parts about this, and it's a very subtle, but I think it's very neat, is when you're shooting the dragon ramp, which is the ramp on the right side. You shoot up that ramp, and then it sort of returns back to your uh, to your right flipper. After you shoot that shot so many times, a diverter opens up and then you'll shoot up the ramp and it'll go right into what, like the damsel in distress spire of the castle, I guess. And it it's fun because you don't expect the ball to do that, right? It goes up and around and up and around and up and around. And then all of a sudden it goes straight through and you're like, oh, where did it, where did it Ooh, go? Ooh, diverter. Diverter. Loving it. Get on those diverters. <laughs> Jack Danger, I'm talking to you. Now, I mean, come on, let's talk about something pretty cool here. One of the damsels in distress is actually Tina Fey. Even I know who that is. Tina Fey. This is back in her like pre-SNL days when she's sort of just struggling to make ends meet. She's the voice in Medieval Madness of, um, what's her name? Some local comedy troupe, Chicago comedy troupe that she was in. That's who they got to do yeah. all the different voices, a lot of them. Right. Now, she did the sort of the opera singer princess and the cockney talking princess. Greg Ferris was the voice of the jousting announcer and one of the trolls, while Francois de Grimm, who was one of the, uh, one of the castle kings or princes the or something. The guys you're being. Francois de Grimm. Yeah. And he was Vince Pontarelli. So it's fun that all these different characters, all these different people get to come together and, and be part of um, medieval madness as well. Yeah, because Greg Ferris was the jousting announcer. He's also the main announcer in No Fear, which always threw me because it's the same exact voice. It's like, wait a minute. It's the, yeah, it's he, the didn't, no fear he didn't guy. dress it up. <laughs> he, yeah. <laughs> I'm expecting him to tell me, you know, some of the No Fear stuff. Totally. Now, of course, this game was the first remake by Chicago Gaming in, by Chicago Gaming Company in 2015 when they made Medieval Madness the standard edition and then the limited edition. This game, of course, was heralded as the greatest pinball machine of all time. Of course, until uh, Multimorphic took the number two spot with Heist and Godzilla with the number one spot. (laughs) And this had to be remade by a company. And they went all in and, and worked actually with Stern to develop that first remake. And uh, yeah. it sold like hotcakes. Some of cakes. them were actually built there. I remember going on the factory tour one year, and there were medieval madnesses on the on the, uh, the production floor. <laughs> like, what? What are they doing here? <laughs> they would move on to other remake titles, and we'll talk about that in a little while. 
But then again, in 2019, 2020, Chicago Gaming would actually go back and revisit Medieval Madness and make a Royale edition, which had a really kind of neat sculpted topper and a new larger uh, DMD. With upgraded graphics. I mean, this machine is, you know, one of the most, I mean, heralded games of all time. And you can tell why it's, it's a lot of fun. What are some of the critiques of this game, Ron? Well, even when I got back into the hobby, like 20 years ago, this was super expensive game, like, you know, 3k or something like, oh my God. Yeah. You were paying insane. new in box prices. Oh my for God. This. I mean, it's funny. It's a very funny game doesn't take itself too seriously no. it shoots very nice it shoots very nice it's very accessible for new players old players kind of remember what it was like when they first play it because eventually you know at one time they were a new player and this was a great game yeah it's a it's a it's a good go the second chicago gaming company remake was of course attack from mars mm-hmm. which went a little step further had the xl uh colored high reser you know dmd display yeah. as well as had a really cool topper And then all of a sudden that became sort of their thing at Chicago gaming. So Ron, around this time, of course, there is some rumblings of a new platform and secret project over at uh, Bally Williams that would eventually become the pinball 2000 system. But of course, during that time, we're going to get one of the best games, but with the lowest production amounts and that's monster bash. Do you have some wonderful feelings about Monster Bash? Uh, it's fun. I like it. Yeah. So we're in July of 1998. We're selling 3,361 units. This is a horror sort of licensed theme designed by George Gomez, art by Kevin O'Connor, dots by Adam Ryan. It's because all he's doing is dots. Mechanics by Chris Shipman and Robert Frizzle. We've got sound and music by Vince Pontarelli and software by Lyman F. Sheets. This, of course, is after the Universal Monsters. This is uh, Dracula, the creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, the Bride of Frankenstein, Frankenstein. These, this is kind of what we got, a jumble of all of them together in a wonderful fan layout, shots left to right, and a fun semi-original campy theme. So what is the object of Monster Bash, Ron? To get the band back together. But that doesn't make any sense. What do you mean? They're a band. So you're getting the band back together. You get them back together by hitting their shots. So like the mummy, he's in a band with... Yeah, like, they're all in the same band. They all play different instruments. <laughs> Very <laughs> cool. Very fun concept. And of course, everybody would remember the song Monster Mash. Yeah, they tried to get they tried to get the license for that. What, what, the, what the guy's name? Boris Bentonoff, I think was his name. And he thought the song was worth more than Williams thought it was worth. Uh, George Gomez says, I wanted to use the Monster Mash song from the 60s as the theme for Monster Bash. But when the owner of the rights to the song wanted too much money... I made mash into bash and never looked back. The reality is we didn't miss it. Adam Ryan would actually say that he thought they were going to charge $20,000 to use the song for a pinball game. That was certainly a bit much. And of course you hear it every year at Halloween. So, I mean, the guy's obviously making a bunch of money. What does he need some money for on a pinball machine? But George says he doesn't miss it very much. So I guess we're good with that. 
George Gomez would say that his favorite game, I don't know if it's currently his favorite game, but back in the day, his favorite game was T2, which was a standard, let's say the first of the most perfect fan layouts of shots left to right. Wonderful positions. Well, George wanted to make his own homage to that. And that became Monster Bash. I wonder if Deadpool is George's favorite game now. Uh, probably. Who did I say? What did I say? Boris Bentonoff? I know what I was thinking of. Bobby Pickett was the guy's name. Bobby Pickett. Don't write in. If you've already opened up yes. your email and sent it, not going to read Bentonoff's it. Boris probably from a cartoon or something. <laughs> Wasn't he like Boris and Natasha? I think so. That's who it is. Yes. <laughs> from Rocky and Bullwinkle. See, still pinball connection. Always yeah. keeping a pinball. It's not a good one though, but. Gomez would also say that Monster Bash was one of those magical moments in developing a product. The sun and the moon, all the stars, they lined up. And in terms of quality and enthusiasm, all the people who worked on the product went above and beyond. Vince Pontarelli's audio package. This is a, we've talked about, uh, you know, Attack from Mars. We talked about Medieval Madness. Uh, Scared Stiff has a great audio package. I, you know, this one I think is better because it's got a lot of these just campy fun bits around those characters themselves. My favorite call out in pinball history is when the vampire, of course, Dracula, when you shoot his shot, he goes, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Well, even now it just cracks me up. What are their instruments? Oh, so, you know, I think... I think the creature's on drums. Nope. Wrong already. The oh. creature is the saxophonist. Right. Frankenstein is, let's see, he's the keyboardist. I think Wolfman's on the drums. Mummy is the bass player. Bride is the singer. And Dracula is the guitarist. Oh, so cool. Yeah, the Wolfman. Of course Wolfman's the Wolfman's got to be the drummer. The drums. Of course. Of course. What is Frankenstein? He's plays he's keyboard? Yeah, that's... Blah. Because he's got his hands yep, out straight. He's got his hands out straight already, so he just goes like, dude, 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 See? This is what yeah. I mean. I freaking love this game. I'm just talking about it on a podcast here alone by myself in my office on a Saturday, and it's cracking me up. The monsters of the rock. Let's rock. What I really enjoy about the Frankenstein mech, so let's talk about that. There's a, there's, there's a, 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 a motorized two-target bank and it will go under the play field. And then up will come off of like a, basically a table is Frankenstein. And then you bash his toes or his feet with the ball. And then he'll flip up and then you can shoot up a ramp, a short little ramp that goes into the, this sort of the ramp that's always there from the right, from the, uh, the right hand shot. It's a very unique sort of multi-stage toy. Um, something like that we don't certainly see a lot of nowadays. This also has the ramp that George Gomez is, is sort of known for, I guess, where the ball kind of comes up a wire form ramp where the wire forms are directly in the play field. Uh, he would use this again in Lord of the Rings. So who the heck is Chris Shipman? So he's the mechanical engineer. And, and when you look at a lot of the mechanics on here, there's some pretty cool stuff. We're not talking Tom Capera right now. No, George's usual guy. So Chris Shipman, he was actually Mark Ritchie's mechanical engineer at Capcom. So when Capcom Pinball started up, Chris Shipman popped in. 
And when Capcom was going down the crapper, uh, George Gomez reached out to Mark and asked him if there were any good mechanical engineers at Capcom. And that's how Chris got his job at Bally Williams. And his first game was Monster Bash. Because Tom Capera was doing something else. So how do you design around a theme like this? This is a pretty deep theme, right? Like you've got the sort of the campiness and stuff, but the theme itself, you've, you've got some kind of iconic characters. How do you, how do you make a play field that is good enough for the universal monsters? Well, George Gomez says up until the eighties used to be that the designer created a game and the artist dressed it. I've never worked that way on a product. I believe that integrating the theme is pivotal because the idea is to immerse the player in the world of the theme's fiction and everything in the game should do that. This game totally does that. Um, I think a lot of designers, especially nowadays, just bang out play fields left and right. And then they sort of put the theme around it, right? They're like, we'll change this bash toy from, from, you know, this toy to this toy. And it's a completely different theme. George, you can tell when he designs his games, you know, you look at Deadpool, you look at Monster Bash, you look at NBA Fast Break, right? Like you couldn't just slap different art on it and it'd be a different game. It's very good that way. Now the scoring approach is kind of interesting, right? So this is, this is a Lyman game. Lyman Sheets is like a, a god amongst pinball playing, uh, you know, enthusiasts, I, I think he's okay. I enjoy his code. I, I, I'm not good enough to know the difference was really between him and Dwight Sullivan, but a lot of people hold him up really, really high. What is so interesting about the code in this game? Uh, trying to get the band together. That's the whole concept of the game. You're trying to assemble the band to play your gig and each different band member is a shot. So you fill up the shots. You got like a mosh pit. And what spinner. he did is you can, you can assemble all the monsters that's monster bash, but if you can get all their instruments, then you get monsters of rock, which is like the Uber wizard mode. Yeah. Sort of like a mini wizard mode. Well, in that, a, that's in the a, Uber. You know, the it's kind of like, mode. it's the dinosaurs conquered the earth in Jurassic park. It's like the, like one, one way you start everything and you get one wizard mode. The, the other one is you actually get all their instruments. So you finished all their stuff. Then you get monsters of rock, which of course is worth more. Yeah, this is a great, this is a great game all around. Lyman also integrated the Phantom Flip. This, uh, I think, is where he spent most of his time in the development cycle was on doing the Phantom Flip. And how does that work? Uh, the game flips itself and tries to make a shot. Does it work? Um, not optimally most of the time. That's why it's usually disabled in any kind of tournament scenario. <laughs> So it's usually, it's, it's sort of like the thing flips, right? But much more, um, advanced. Well, as George Gomez says, Lyman owes me big time because the number of sensor and array configurations that he made me screw into that white wood, it was never ending. He'd say, okay, now I want a proximity sensor here and two IR sensors over here. Then I want to roll over switch and three proximity sensors. He was just making me crazy. I'd say, we got to build the game. He'd say, but it's gotta be cool. <laughs> how well is is that right the the mad scientist uh that is lyman sheets when it works it's cool because it literally flips itself and makes the shot what i find um so cool about george gomez 
is all of the things that he has given to Pinball and continues to give to Pinball. So for example, he's building Monster Bash with the mad scientist Lyman Sheets, but at the same time, he's working on that super secret project with Pat Lawler. Now, George had to schedule around the engineer, Chris Shipman, and George's usual engineer, Tom Capera, was working on his own game. So Chris and George would have to work around Lyman Sheets' hours because they had to optimize everything to maximize Lyman's time. If a machine was down for two hours while they were screwing in some mechanisms or changing some sensors, doing some testing or shooting it, that is two hours that Lyman couldn't work with it. There was only one Whitewood, and it would sit in Lyman's office. Shipman used to come in at around 5 a.m., with George, and they would work on the game until 10. That's when Lyman Sheets would roll in from 10 o'clock, and he would be back on his computer doing all the playfield stuff, and they would start working on the game. Now, George kept his regular hours when he was doing all of this stuff, but they were crazy hours, because after his day was done, George would jump into his Porsche, he would drive all the way into the middle of nowhere to see Pat Lawler and they would work on Pinball 2000 in Pat's famous home workshop. This guy has done a lot for pinball. <laughs> and you could learn about Pinball 2000 by listening to the Silverball Chronicles Pinball 2000 episode. Swing on over to silverballchronicles.com to check out the archive. Feel free to download and listen to all of our old and past episodes. Most of them where I'm much funnier than Ron. Says you. Now, this is a flow beast, right? That's very flowy. Very flowy. George George likes flow. He really, this is where he really, I think, got into, you know, he did a lot of flow in Johnny Mnemonic, but there's a little clunk in there. No, there's no clunk in Johnny Mnemonic. Other if you're going to call the glove a clunk. And and Corvette is super flowy, too. Uh, You're not going to get me on that one. Ah, you suck. You, You can't flow more than Johnny Mnemonic. That thing is... One of the flowiest things ever made. Uh, But George says, to me, flow is not strictly about a series of smooth shots, although clearly they're the most obvious component of it. There's an intensity that occurs when one shot sets up another shot or a possible transition in the midst of accomplishing a greater game goal like a hurry-up or a scoring frenzy. The feedback the game gives you with sounds as you complete consecutive shots is vital to enhancing that feeling. It's about getting the player so intensely focused on making the subsequent shot to continue the combination that it becomes all-consuming. Man! I have never heard of anybody describe flow any better than that. Even the king of flow himself can't describe flow like that. I agree. That's flow. (laughs) And no, Steve Ritchie does not talk like that in real life. Just in games. What do you, like in a nutshell, what do you, what do you, what do you think of Monster Bash? Why don't you have one of these in your collection? Uh, too easy. Really? It it gets somewhat repetitive. Same Mm -hmm. reason I wouldn't have like scared stiff because you can get to the wizard mode like on ball one, a lot of times. Ah. Needs a little, little, little harder. A little, little harder. This is more of a game for me. And also at the time, even back in the day, 10, 15 years ago, Monster Bash was extremely expensive. They didn't make a lot of these. No. Um, and a lot of them didn't survive as well. You know, the arcade circuit. The ones that did, they, they went for high, high value numbers. Yeah. And that's why Chicago Gaming pulled this one out for their third remake. Monster Bash... Attack from Mars, Medieval Madness, they were the games that everyone, 
the, all those other games we mentioned from the era, they, they ripped all the parts off of that to save these games. Yeah, Monster Bash is still a top 10 game on the pin side. Well, probably Tales from Arabian Nights is another one. But like NBA Jam, Congo, they just they, they ripped those games apart to get parts for the other games. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you, this is this is a this is this is a great game. This is a wonderful game. If you're like me, you're a pretty good player, but you're you know you're not killing it. You know you're not getting to big wizard modes. If you struggle a little bit with Jurassic Park, you're you know you're you're getting maybe to the T Rex paddock. <laughs> you know this is more your style of game, <laughs> Monster Bash, and you'll enjoy it. You really will. My friend uh, Pete picked one of these up, the Chicago Gaming um, SE remakes. And uh, I have not been up to his place since he purchased that because of the whole world ending thing. And hmm. um, I really look forward to playing a lot of this game when I have a chance. All these games we went through, are there any real bombs? There really isn't. No. See, even though Pinball's dying, it's not like they're making terrible games. But that's that's where I opened it up, right? The, these new designers are coming in with some cool new ideas, new new sort of ways of doing things some mechanics they're not getting those 10,000 unit sales numbers which is a shame but that brings us to the last dmd game williams bally ever produced cactus canyon that's right the date of manufacture is october of 1998 people will say but that's not the last game that bally williams ever made well it's the last dmd bally williams ever made this sells 903 units. It's a cowboy American Wild West theme. It's designed by Tom Capera, Matt Corrale, Corrale. Ugh. art by John Yossi, <laughs> Adam Ryan and Jeff uh, Raff, uh, Jim Raff on dots and animation, Louis Toy on mechanics. Boy, that's a, a fortunate last name. Music by Rob Barry. And of course he did the sound. This, this production was cut short again because of pinball 2000, as well as it didn't really shoot the lights out when it wasn't really cut short that much though. The the actual plan was for 925 games and they did 903. So they just screw the last 22. Don't bother. This, This was another one of those games that went for high, high dollar on the secondary market because it was it was sort of seen as like the last magical game that, yeah. that they did, right? The the, the pinball two thousand, the last crash. regular pinball machine. It had all the magic. It was the last game with magic, Ron. <laughs> now the major piece to this was that it had unfinished code, code which today to this day still is unfinished, except for some hobbyists who've made their own updated code. Ah, uh, Chicago Gaming did finish some of it. It actually has a match sequence now. Oh. I, I've seen it. and I've seen the new one in action. What do you think? So this is Chicago Gaming. We mentioned that before. They made all these other remakes. They've, their latest remake is Cactus Canyon. And they've touched up some of the code. But then they're going to have an extra code package you can buy for a, as yet undisclosed price. That will be from Lyman Sheets and Josh Sharp. Um, Josh Sharp's finished like number two in a lot of majors, right? You see that guy? I think he's the play tester. Oh, okay. Lyman writes the code, he play tests it. Um, it's got a topper that's pretty cool. It's basically a guy drawing 
you know, guns on you because it's totally it's, it's the West. It makes sense. This 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 is was a difficult game for a lot of people to play. If you were able to find one of these, it was like, whoa, wow, I got to play Cactus Canyon. There's only nine hundred and four of them or whatever. I think I think Chicago Gaming is probably going to sell more than nine hundred already. Yes, <laughs> I, I think so. Um, so they've sold more of these games than Bally Williams. It's it's got the Williams humor in it. That's for sure. Excellent voice work. I mean, it's got guns in it, man. It, you know, guns right on the apron. And it really hadn't been. I mean, what was the last Western themed pinball machine? Well, it was the. Remember we talked about the one with, uh, the one with Roger Sharp on it. Um, yeah, Sharpshooter. Sharpshooter or Sharpshooter Two. <laughs> Yeah. When was that? That was like 88. We went through all these Gottliebs. I mean, there's got to be at least one Gottlieb. Well, there was, was, there, was the, there was the sharpshooter in Gottlieb. Or not sharpshooter, but um, bounty hunter. Oh, yeah. That's like mid-80s. They also had Cactus Jacks, which, I don't know. That wasn't really Western, but it was eh, it had cactuses. It had a cactus. For, that's one out of five things that you need to be, you know, Wild West theme. But the great story about Cactus Canyon, it was just literally, we need to fill the line with something until we start Pinball 2000. What you all got? Yeah, and that's where, because George is too tired, he's he's doing his monster bash. So Tom Capera and Matt Coriel, I'm going to say that, that's how I say his name. They had already kind of started working on a game on their own time. So when it came time to like show off their games, they were the only ones that actually had a, a working Whitewood, like here. And they're like, oh, man, okay. You guys get the job. And it became Cactus Canyon. Very, very cool. And because it was because it was the fill the line, let's get something out the door, let's keep everything running until Pinball 2000 gets up, that's where a lot of the issues from this appeared, right? There were a lot of unfinished mechanics that were cut from the game, as well as, of course, we had mentioned the unfinished code. Adam Ryan would say that Cactus Canyon was the very last dot game we were being pushed really hard, especially myself, to leave the dots behind and to get on to Pinball 2000. Basically, my time was cut short learning the 3D design for Pinball 2000 and working with George Gomez. Myself and Jim Rapp were both pulled away from the project too soon. You can tell, right? The other thing is, there's a couple of mechanics that were pulled out. So originally, in the play field there was supposed to be saloon doors that you would sort of shoot through and they were sort of, uh, you know, gates or whatever. Yeah, it was like, yeah, it, it was like medieval madness. You hit it and it opens and then you hit the head. They cut that because they thought it was like you had a bash toy in front of a bash toy. So why do you need that? So they cut that out. Right, still cool. That would have gone in front of, what is it, Bad Bart, I think, right? Bionic Bart. Bionic Bart. I love Bart. Then there's also another mechanic that was removed, which was over by the by the mountain and the 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 mine. I think it was supposed to move a different way or up and down or something. And the center ramp changed several times. Originally, it was going to be like two ramps, like a diverter thing. And come on, diverters, man! Yeah, I'm sorry they took the diverter out. No, no. But they kept these stupid guns on the. The guns apron. are awesome. I mean, they're, it's a friggin' Western theme. You need to have the six shooters on the bottom. Everybody knows about the up post in the, in the in lanes on Jurassic Park. Well, this was a game that had originally on the left and right side for the gunfight. So yep. the object was that you would shoot the in lanes and the ball would be held there until you are ready to pull your gun. The bull would come down, the ball, bull, the ball would come down the in lanes. It, the, um, the thing would pop up, stop the ball. And there was four drop targets. 
and it's like draw and they, they come up and down. They were all individually controlled up and down and they would come up and down, come up and down. And they would finally say draw and one of the four would come up and you had to hit it. It was neat. It it's was neat. neat. I have now I have actually played a cactus Canyon, oh. an original cactus Canyon. Oh my. For a guy who hasn't played a whole lot of games. You play some rare ones. I've played a lot of really like odd and rare games. It's very unusual. Well, Canada is very odd and usual. <laughs> that's that's right. Odd and unusual. I couldn't even say that right. Well, that's okay. We have a better education system up here. That is true. The the plunge is really cool because you, you plunge up and you go into like a like a whirlpool, a whirlpool yep. kind of saucer thing, which is really neat. I often wonder if they just repurpose that from uh, Whitewater. Like if it's the exact same thing. Yeah, they just changed the they color. They probably did if they were cost-cutting. The the other thing is I can tell that the code is unfinished in this game because I played it the second time I flipped this game. I actually flipped it until I basically made it right to the wizard mode on ball three. And as mentioned before, not really the greatest of players. It's all the shots are wide open, like super wide open. You, you It's impossible to miss them. You just keep shooting each shot over and over and over again until you fill it up and then you're into the wizard mode. And I, I, I GC'd this game from this owner who had a very fancy private collection and, and I had no idea what I was even really doing. So hopefully we can get some better code in the future. Yeah. The match, the match sequence was just a placeholder. Wasn't even... Like, it would just come up with the match, the number, with no real animation, nothing. And in the flyer, Cactus Canyon, it says, The West has never been this wild. You rode into Cactus Canyon. Uh, I should do this in a southern accent, right, if it's the old West. You rode into Cactus Canyon, a stranger. But you can use your skills to become marshal of this little town and need a taming. There's plenty of cleaning up to do here. And Mayor Cleetum, he has a name. Mayor Cleetum. Mayor Cleetum. Cleetum hopes you're just the buckaroo to do it, but earning your badge won't be easy. You'll have to do something about the stampedes that charge through the town from time to time, trampling everything in their paths. These, those gunslinging outlaws, the Bart brothers, are itching to challenge you to a showdown. You just might find yourself staring them down at the old corral, so you better have a quick draw. And pretty Miss Polly is bound to be tied up in some perilous predicament so it'll be up to you to save her you've got to be prepared for anything in a town like this but if you're up to the challenge you could hit the mother load here in cactus canyon so reach for your revolver and get ready to shoot because the west has never been this wild oh brutal i'll tell you it's a cool game it's a cool game um doesn't particularly do it for me Aww. i think i'd rather have an attack from mars monster bash um i you know, those are the games I think I'd rather have. Uh, Medieval Madness for sure. Hence the reason uh, Chicago Gaming did all those first. Exactly. <laughs> now, would I have much rather Chicago Gaming done a theater of magic and fix some of the kind of the issues with its code? Absolutely. Hmm. Uh, a Tales of the Arabian Nights, 100%. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of people that really, really love this game. I'm surprised they did Cactus Canyon before either Tales or um, what's the other Papa Duke one? Uh, theater of Magic. Yeah, it's surprising, isn't it? I, I thought they would get... A theater of Magic, I thought, would get done first. Well, around this time, Ron, we're on the home stretch, but this is when things start to get really rough. And do you sell the Williams 
pinball division or do you close it down? Well, Pat Lawler would go on the record as saying on an old TopCast episode that they had to either sell it or they could write down $12 million. So they could, somebody out there would have to buy the Williams pinball division for 12 million, or they could use it as a, as a basically an accounting practice where you write it off, you get a loss, and then you can offset gains elsewhere. Well, nobody is going to pay $12 million for a pinball company in 2000. So that's when they decided to just write it off and send it out the door. Gomez says, shut down the spigot down to a trickle in particular business is not necessarily explosive. Don't lop it off. It's kind of like, let's get rid of it and move on. To me, that says you don't want to be in the business. You want to be in a different business. Well, what's wrong with your coin business? There was a bunch of money made when the video game company spun off, and that's what this was about. It was about how much money can we make? We're in the middle, the business of making a profit today, and f*** everything else. So that's when Williams shuts down. Lawler would say, when they fired us, for me personally, it was like a giant weight had been lifted off my shoulders. Not that I didn't want the company to succeed, but going to work every day with a sense of dread was horrible. They feel like the axe is right there, right? Any day they're going to come in and get axe. And then when it finally does, it's like, ah, finally done. I can move on. (laughs) Now, of course, do you think that Neil Nicastro killed the Bally Williams business? The president of Williams? Did he kill it? Well, he kind of shut it down. But George says, Neil is either Darth Vader or the nicest guy. Neil wasn't out to get us or anything like that. But I think that his methods were not particularly supportive. But he did give us a shot. And we did take a shot. So perhaps he did support us. Yeah. So a lot of people would have a lot of commentary on, well, why didn't they keep running DMD business and Pinball 2000? Go back to our Pinball 2000 episode and we talk about that um, and why they wouldn't have run those two parallel things. But it was certainly a different kind of uh, fight and struggle. There were so many uh, resources at this corporation, but for some reason they just, they weren't pulling in the same direction as management. And, and it it just, it came down to business and sadly that was the end. In fact, the passion and the creativity that was created at Williams at the time has actually built Chicago gaming company to a higher level because they're making, remaking those games. Their entire pinball business model has basically been built on making remakes of those games. So that's, that's pretty nuts. But where did, uh, where did some of the people go that were still at Williams at this time? Well, Greg Freire says, When Williams closed, I went to Midway and did art directing on touchscreen, Xbox, and PlayStation games. It took two to three years to develop a game there versus 12 months on a pinball machine. I was a fish out of water. Imagine you're working in a high-pressure, get-it-out-the-door you know, business model, and now they're like, ah, just take 12 months. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. Uh, you know, lots of these guys would, they would go off. Some of them would start to work for, for Sega, which would become Stern. Uh, some of them would take time to do independent contracting for a few years before they would end up at Stern. You know, the industry itself was in a lot of flux. In fact, Greg Ferreras ended up in Stern and now he is the director of their art team there. Mm-hmm. One thing that people always talk about in the Bally Williams era was the magic the magic of Bally Williams, right? Like, oh, Stern, they stripped everything out. And, you know, those games are no good. I want, I want the, the world under glass that was in Bally Williams, right? I need a new Bally Williams. 
Jersey Jack is supposed to be the new Bally Williams. Well, George Gomez says, I have yet to run across that combination of personalities, that combination of talent. I mean, when I worked at Marvin Glass, there was an incredible amount of talent in that place. In a lot of ways, Williams reminded me of that. There was a tremendous amount of talent, the most talented guys I've ever worked with. We're talking engineers, artists, designers, animation teams. Of course, that interview might have been 10 years ago. I ask him that now. <laughs> yeah, These well, Stern guys are the most talented. The, the biggest pieces to those to that puzzle is that all of those cylinders were firing at the same time. Like you look at somebody like Papa Duke, J-Pop, right? He really struggled after he got out of the Bally Williams team because he didn't have his engineers. He didn't have his same artists. He didn't have, you know, he was, he, he, he couldn't get the stake to back up the sizzle, right? You look at, uh, you know, Jersey Jack, right? They struck, they, they, they have all this stuff in their machines, right? They went with wide bodies. They jammed everything and you possibly imagined into the game. They almost went bankrupt. They had to have financial backing come in and save them. But there's still something that's kind of missing. There's some kind of, there's, they're just missing the salt and pepper on there, right? There's just something missing. You can't quite put your finger on it. So you can't ever recreate Bally Williams. And I wish that we as a hobby would just move on to the new games and the new manufacturers that are rising up. I've moved on. <laughs> Here's one last quote from Greg Freres. He says, life at Bally, I made lifelong friends. We kept up with each other. Wow, it was good at Bally. I can't say enough good things about everyone I've worked with. There you go. What an awesome team. Ron, what was your favorite game we talked about this week? Besides Attack from Mars. Attack from Mars. Ah, uh, oh, crap. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't, Monster Bash. I'll go with that. Yeah, it's a good one. That's a good one. I'd love to have a Monster Bash. I think that would fit really well in sort of my collection. Uh, I just have my Tron, but I think it would fit really well. It goes, my family would really love it. It's my wife's favorite game. Did you know your Tron's worth $100,000 now? You should really sell it. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, unless, <laughs> I think I'll be buried in my Tron, actually. Mm. Will Daft Puck be playing at your uh, funeral and stuff? <laughs> that will, yeah. The Grid. The Grid. Wonderful. Thank you, everybody, for joining us this month on Silver Ball Chronicles. I'm David Dennis, and of course, thank you, Ron, for being a part of this amazing adventure. Oh, yeah. As always, you can send your comments, questions, corrections, and concerns to silverballchronicles at gmail.com. We look forward to all the messages and we read every one. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. Turn on automatic downloads so you don't miss a single episode. Remember to leave us a five-star review. That way more people can find us. Do you want to support the podcast and need a new t-shirt? Of course you do. Swing on over to SilverballSwag.com and pick up a Silverball Chronicles t-shirt. All proceeds go to Ron Hallett because David Dennis didn't want the PayPal account.
see, I got the, because I'm old, I have the bifocal mm-hmm. thing on mm-hmm. them. Like, my distance is fine, but when I'm, like, in front of the computer or trying to read from my yeah. phone, it's a pain in the ass. Like, some of these flyers you're reading, like, what I can't read What are you talking about? Yeah, back in my day. Yeah. Sorry. You there? I got a tea. Oh. <laughs> I decided that was a prime opportunity to escape and get tea. Oh. Because you were rambling. Oh. <laughs> Good stuff. So, Continue. Or you're done. Oh, that was it. That was it. That was it. That was it. You're done. I, I didn't hear any of it. I assume it was pretty good. It was good. I'll hear it later when I edit. Mm-hmm. Two minute warning. I am going to go and see if I can get into the stupid tournament. I will be back. Do you want to go now? Yeah, I'm going now. It's, it's okay. I got two minutes here, so I got to get. All I right. got to get in front of my. I, I'm using the better PC for that. <laughs> All right. Oh, the life of a tournament player. Chasing the Whopper Dragon. I guess I'm going to go pee then. And that's where the spider came from. Spider. Well, I said spider, but I didn't write spider. No, you said spire. Did I say spire? Yeah, you did. I'll listen to that back, and if that's wrong. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what was Trudeau working on? I don't know if he's working on anything. He was just there. He was just hanging out. Coming in, eating a sandwich, leaving. You got to be prepared for anything in a town like this. But if you're up to the challenge, you can hit the mother... Oh, fuck. The throat has survived. Lots of warm water and four lozenges I've sucked down here. <laughs> oh, my. Ugh. Better go Ugh. Ah! What are you doing? Sneaking up on me. Good Lord. Jeez, my dad was behind me. Scared the crap out of me. <laughs>